Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masterson. Today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the massive influx of dark money into the Republican Senate races, which, in spite of what Mitch McConnell referred to as a problem with the quality of their candidates, could overcome the outrageous deficiencies of Herschel Walker, Ron Johnson, J.D. Vance and Mehmet Oz, with Leonard Leo's avalanche of money. Joining us is Jared Yates Sexton, the author of The Man They Wanted Me To Be, The People Are Going To Rise Like The Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. He also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. At long last, let's call it what it is. We will look into how the American oligarchy, having already bought the Supreme Court, is trying to buy the legislative branch and could succeed if Democrats do not show up at the polls in record numbers on or before November the 8th. Then we'll assess how much the House January 6th committee's final hearing with a concluding vote to subpoena Donald Trump has moved the needle in terms of support for Democrats in the upcoming election. Joining us is Moira Donegan, a writer living in New York whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, and we will discuss her latest article at The Guardian. The vote to subpoena Trump shows Democrats have found their fighting spirit. Then finally, as the Chinese Communist Party Congress begins today to anoint Xi Jinping for another decade in power at a time when the country's once-roaring economy is in deep trouble, We'll speak with Susan Shirk, a research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. From 1997 to 2000, she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs with responsibilities for China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia, and is the author of China, Fragile Superpower, and The Political Logic of Economic Reform in China. Her latest book out this week is Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, and we will discuss her article at the New York Times, Xi Jinping Has Fallen Into the Dictator Trap. And joining us now is Jared Yates Sexton, who is the author of The Man They Wanted Me To Be and The People Are Going To Rise Like The Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People, And he also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. At long last, let's call this what it is. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Yates Sexton. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're in Georgia, so did you watch the uh, one and only debate between Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, and... Herschel Walker. Unfortunately, I, I have to tell you, I, I think Herschel Walker is um, not not just an embarrassment of a candidate, but also a, a, a slow moving tragedy. I, I, I think to see that a candidate, um, an unwell candidate, um, a uh, publicly exposed candidate, to see that he continues to maintain support among the Republican Party, I think it says less about him and more about the state of the GOP. And the fact that all of the principles that uh, they have supposedly held 
for the past few decades have been nothing but, you know, cudgels for power. And on top of that, that they literally care about nothing but power. It's um, it's really disturbing. And to understand that Herschel Walker still might be the next senator from the state of Georgia, I, it's um, it's it's a real tragedy all the way around. Well, he'll be joining Tommy Turberville and Ron Johnson if he's re-elected. So the U.S. Senate, uh, which was always considered the most elite club in the world of, you know, somewhat learned gentlemen and a few gentle ladies, it's going to become an idiocracy. It's it's really terrible. And and I think one of the things, um, this is something I've been trying to wrap my head around over the past few weeks, particularly as Herschel Walker's uh, problems have come over and over and over again to the forefront. You know, this really shows a modern understanding that it really doesn't matter who the individual is that comes to represent you. And it really doesn't matter any of these principles that the Republican Party again throws around and claims that they care about. It's, it's again, it's a total pursuit of power. And it's a cynical type of idea that that starts to expose the fact that faith in representative government, particularly at this moment, is is dwindling. And when that starts to happen, um, there are unfortunately a lot of consequences and side effects. And in this Herschel Walker case in particular, um, and, and, you know, it, it's the same thing in Pennsylvania with Mehmet Oz. We have we have a whole slew of candidates who are completely unprepared for this office, but they're being propelled forward by a political party that is absolutely obsessed with nothing more than maintaining power and forwarding their power. Well, the former spokesperson for the NRA, that dreadful woman, said that she doesn't care if Herschel Walker aborted endangered baby eagles. She wants to hold on to the power of the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, of course, has, as far as I can tell, the $1.6 billion that Leonard Leo, who's already stacked the federal bench and the Supreme Court with his hand-picked candidates, that money is being deployed in massive amounts. And the Democrats are being outspent in all of these key Senate races where they have a chance of a pickup. And already 538 is suggesting that Catherine Cortez Mesto in, in Nevada may lose and that the Republicans could pick up that seat. So this is the where the battle is being fought. And it's a battle where enormous amounts of dark money are being deployed. We don't know whether this $1.6 billion is being spent because that's the nature of dark money. But we And we didn't even know about the $1.6 billion that Leonard Leo got for this election to help the Republicans, but for investigative journalism. Yes, and, and this is the main issue of the moment. Um, it, it all sort of springs from this. All of the side effects, everything from Leo's uh, capture of the judiciary to the rollback of Roe v. Wade to the, the rise of authoritarianism, what we're watching here is a, a moment in which accumulated wealth in just a few hands, because what has happened over the past few decades is that so much money and so many resources have been redistributed from the bottom up to the point where we have this new millionaire billionaire class that is absolutely obsessed with destroying democracy, with rolling back these avenues by which representative government are supposed to work. You know, you you look at this, um, you, you look at the race right now, you have two candidates in particular, Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, who are running for the Senate and more or less bankrolled entirely by one tech mogul uh, in, in Peter Thiel. 
And what has happened since um, the the push for Citizens United and the flood of dark money is you're now looking at basically a party in the Republican Party that has become a public relations front for a very, very small group of billionaires who are, again, obsessed with uh, rolling back any and all progress of the 20th century, whether it's uh, regulations, whether it's affirmative action, a woman's right to choose. We're talking about minimum wage. We're talking about social safety net issues like Social Security, Medicare. This process, what what, what we're watching taking place right now, it's the consequence of that redistribution of wealth over the past few decades. And it was inevitable that we were going to get here the moment that that dark money was allowed to flow the way that it does. Well, already the dark money has bought the Supreme Court. So yeah. the plutocrats found a weak spot, if you will, because they can buy the Supreme Court and undo laws and reshape the laws in a way that they could never sell politically because these are so outrageously stacked for the interests of the plutocrats, not the people. But if they take over the legislative branch in this election through the $1.6 billion that Leonard Leo is deploying, then they'll, have, they'll control both the judicial and the legislative branch. Yes. And, and the frightening thing about all of this is that the way America was constructed and, and actually constituted was it was about protecting a, a minority. And we're always told, of course, that that's about making sure that there's not a tyranny of the majority coming after people. But the minority that it was meant to protect were wealthy white men from the very beginning. And now we've reached this point, going back to the capturing of the judiciary, you have it in the judiciary, you have it in the Senate, you have it, of course, with the presidency, where the Republican Party has only won one popular vote in the last 20 years. And what you're seeing is that these minoritarian institutions are being used by a minoritarian party and a minoritarian movement. And so as a result, they are very susceptible to these actions. There's a reason why the Supreme Court went down uh, uh, first is because it was meant to uh, protect that very, very uh, small minority. And so we're seeing that money and that influence and that power is starting to not only corrupt the system and, and knocking out any impediment towards like empowering itself and growing richer and more powerful, but we're actually seeing the takeover of the entire system from that entry point. And that dark money that we're, we're witnessing, it's, it's only going to get worse because over time it, it's going to become more and more obvious that this is the means by which the wealthiest few can go ahead and make sure that everything sort of follows uh, according to their own whims. So the ultimate capture then would be not just the judiciary, which has already been captured, and the legislative branch, which the plutocrats might well capture in November. But then, of course, in 2024, you have the possibility of Trump returning. A recent Washington Post-ABC News poll found that 47% of Republicans want Trump to be their nominee in 2024. And if he will be running against Biden, the same poll has Trump beating Biden 48 to 46%. Yeah. And so the question there is, and and one of the things that we're starting to see with Donald Trump is it's very obvious how much the Republican Party and how much the system at large really does not want him around anymore. I think Donald Trump was um, very effective in exposing the weaknesses of our institutions and their vulnerability to corruption uh, writ large, sort of exposing the lack of consequences for doing any of these strongman authoritarian attempts. 
So we're looking at 2024 now with the idea that this dark money and this wealth and this power might so corrupt the system that they might be able to take over all of the different levels of government. Plus also, and this is the frightening part, gerrymander out the possibility of any future, uh, you know, majority democratic sort of opposition. So you go ahead, you fix the elections, you make sure uh, that you push things like the independent legislature theory, which says that, you know, states can run their own elections, the federal government and their courts can't do anything about it. And then the really frightening thing here is whether it's Donald Trump somehow or another reascending to power and then sort of having no checks on on his power whatsoever, or the prospect of there being a really, really talented and intelligent embodiment of this. Somebody like a Ron DeSantis who can come in and, and use these levers while also being disciplined and enjoying legitimizing support. Uh, among the media, among politicians, because he isn't Donald Trump. So in all of this, you know, the idea that the Republican Party is somehow or another going to correct itself or wake up out of its, you know, nightmare or or break its fever, I don't see that happening. I think this is a political project that has to be defeated and defeated soundly and, quite frankly, has to go away. Well, Apparently, Trump is quite worried about the fact that he stole all that government property, which is largely top-secret documents. The FBI still don't know whether they've got back all the documents. They suspect they haven't. I think that the DOJ will indict him after the elections, but the January 6th committee's hearing on Thursday night mentioned that on December the 11th, when Trump literally went nuts, when the Supreme Court rejected his executive privilege claim over the White House documents, the only member of the court voting in his favour, of course, was Clarence Thomas. The entire court looks as if they rejected his latest plea to stop this DOJ inquiry into the theft of these documents. So my understanding is that Trump is going equally ballistic because he's a wannabe mob boss, and he looked upon the Supreme Court, OK, I put you guys on there, you just like a... A mob boss would look upon his mafia lawyers, get the job done, you know? <laughs> I mean, this is what we have descended to. The thing that I don't understand, Jared, is how we got this far. How come this guy wasn't stopped back in 2016? How come the press never really... They gave him $5 billion worth of free advertising. Why didn't they really investigate this serial criminal in his business world, his ties to Russia, ties to Putin? I mean, the whole thing is an absolute disgrace, and now... The writing is on the wall. They made it clear that he's a career criminal and a traitor. And and I think all of this is is very, very essential to start unpacking because it, it seems completely inexplicable, right? Um, you know, in, in the case of all of those billions of dollars that the American media gave in terms of free advertising, um, it was quite simply in their interest. It drove, you know, record ratings. It drove record clicks and traffic online. Like Donald Trump, and, and he's completely right when he says that the media is addicted to him and depends on him. That's because our media is completely wired and 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 set up to bring in a Donald Trump and sort of juice him for everything that they possibly can. So you get all this free advertising. And what ended up happening in 2016 was I think a lot of people thought that the system itself 
was simply going to spit him out like so many so much bad food. And the idea was that, you know, there's no way that somebody who is so obviously corrupt and so obviously buffoonish could possibly ever rise to the level of the presidency. And I think in a lot of this, it was a hubris. It was an idea that America was too strong and it was too uh, the the systems were too fortified and that, you know, that it was of some higher purpose or there was some sort of an American exceptionalism that would protect it. And in all of this, and this goes for the media, but it also goes for our political class, you have a lot of very wealthy, very powerful, very privileged people who are incapable of understanding what's happening or unwilling to understand what's happening because it would take a fundamental self-reflection. They would have to think about what it is that got them to their positions, what it is that made them wealthy, what gave them the affluence that they have. And Donald Trump worked as a dark reflection of that. And to really investigate who he is and what he is and how he came to power would be a self-reflection that would threaten to destroy some of these people's self-identity. And so now you've reached this point where even, you know, as we're having this conversation, people are still in, in the media saying, oh, it's not that bad. People are being reactionary. They're pulling their hair. They're being hysterical. And it's because they cannot even begin wrestling with the actual implications of, of what is occurring right now. Well, we talked about the dark money and the Citizens United decision. I mean, it has turned our, our lawmakers into telemarketers. They spend their days dialing for dollars. The Republicans have a natural fit with moneyed interests and the plutocracy, and the Democrats have to appeal to the same plutocrats for money. That's our system. It's entirely based on money. So to my mind, the real issue, as we've said before, that's where it lies. It absolutely does. And to get into the history of how this happened, you know, th there's this thing that takes place in the 1980s, particularly as Reagan is ascending to power. And the Democrats say, you know what? Look at all these landslides. We can't defeat Reaganism. We can't even possibly compete with it. The only thing we can do is offer a different version of it. So the Democratic Party moves away from its original base. And, and those who follow history know this. It's labor unions. It's poor people. It's people of color. It's, it's oppressed populations. And now we've reached this point where the consensus reality is both of the parties are asking different groups of the same people for money. And in, in, in these cases, it's, you know, wealthy billionaires and millionaires, it's corporations, it's special interest. And so what ends up happening is they end up in their own sort of back and forth, but nobody's actually addressing the material conditions that are causing this problem. And why? because they are all asking for money from the people who have created the material conditions that have led us down this road. And so as a result, you have two parties, one of which the Republican Party is descending into just right wing authoritarian fascist nationalism and a Democratic Party that has went from calling for a fairer, more human country to now basically being the defenders of the institutions. There's no sort of an idea of how things might be possibly changed except for what the right is pushing, which is, you know, this authoritarian um, just overreach that, you know, is is really, really disturbing and, and, and frightening. But there's no sort of an alternative in terms of what we could do to make it better. Right. And just in closing, rich people have always given money to politicians on the understanding that they're obedient, not necessarily smart, not necessarily good for the country. I mean, that's their their bottom line, isn't it? 
Exactly. And to go ahead and, and give the devil his due, you know, what, one of the things about Donald Trump is he is absolutely full of it and lies constantly, but he's very truthful occasionally and he has points occasionally. And when he was out on the debate stage and he says, I give money to everybody and then they do what I want and they return my calls. He was absolutely correct. This is a corrupted system, and corrupted systems such as ours lead to these conditions. The only way we're going to get out of this is if we address the corruption widespread and we find a different way. Well, Jared Yates Sixon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, great as always. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Yates Sixon, who's the author of The Man They Wanted Me To Be and The People Are Going To Rise Like The Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. His latest book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. And he also has a forthcoming book out soon, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And he has an article at jaredyatesexton.substack.com. At long last, let's call this what it is. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of how much the House January 6th Committee's final hearing with a concluding vote to subpoena Donald Trump has moved the needle in terms of support for Democrats in the upcoming election. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Well, I'm sitting behind my desk. Washington, D.C. And everyone on cable news is yelling at me. And there's only one place in this whole wide world I want to go. That's down underneath the Florida sun in Mar-a-Lago. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Moria Donegan, who is a writer living in New York. His work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is The Vote to Subpoena Trump Shows Democrats Have Found Their Fighting Spirit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Moira Donegan. Thanks, Ian. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And last Thursday's what is considered to be the final hearing of the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, of course, ended dramatically with a subpoena for Trump. Most people think it's not going to go anywhere, but Trump's indicating he might, he'd like to talk to them. I, I wouldn't rule that out, frankly. I mean, first of all, the guy doesn't have any proper legal advice. He's just got sycophants and legal charlatans hanging around him, and he can't avoid, I mean, he's not going to turn down an opportunity to get all those ratings, is he? So how would you rate the possibility of him showing up even, and by the way, most people think he won't show up because he's under oath and therefore he'd have to plead the fifth. He's been deposed so many times because he's a career criminal that he's already had many rehearsals. Yeah, you know, there's certainly a possibility that Donald Trump would take the opportunity to grandstand on television where he could perhaps uh, spin or tell half-truths. You're right that he has been sort of depleted of his best lawyers. There's very few people even in the, you know, very robust right-wing legal uh, world who, who are willing to work with this guy. But, you know, he issued this 
statement the the day following the subpoena vote that was a little bit uh, incoherent. Many of the statements, you know, sentences were in, you know, all caps. It didn't directly address the subpoena or, or say whether or not he would cooperate. Uh, it did impugn the validity of the committee in the first place. So, you know, it, it could go either way, but I would, I would be, I think, pretty certain that no, whether or not he challenges the subpoena or whether or not he winds up testifying, he will certainly uh, use this to what he feels is his advantage. Well, you know, the thing that drives me nuts, Moira, is that we're talking about this guy. I thought he would go away, and he didn't. And your article at The Guardian, The Voted Subpoena Trump Shows Democrats Have Found Their Fighting Spirit, suggests that Biden made a mistake in sort of leaning on the impeachment committee that came out of the House just after January the 6th to impeach him. Apparently, they, according to a new book, they came under pressure from the White House not to uh, provide witnesses, et cetera, and really nail the SOB because Biden wanted to move on. If that's true, which it appears to be, that's an example of the temerity, the unnecessary temerity. And then now, of course, we have this belated efforts to tell the public about who he is. But, you know, what's been going on for the last four years? Yeah, you know, there's a little bit of unfairness in comparing Trump's second impeachment, the one in which he was charged for crimes uh, relating to January 6th, with this subcommittee hearing. You know, we are two years out at this point, whereas the impeachment happened, I believe, just a little over a month after uh, January 6th itself. There's just been lots and lots more time uh, for witnesses to change their minds, sort of a marked uh, trend in the subcommittee hearings has been uh, the tendency of Republicans and people who used to work often quite closely with Trump uh, sort of having these epiphanies or uh, being compelled by subpoenas to speak and uh, giving stories of how they uh, tried to dissuade Trump from his worst impulses and, and were innocent all along, et cetera, et cetera. But there's just there's tons and tons more information now than there was uh, back in February of 2021. So I don't I don't want to give the uh, House impeachment managers back then too hard a time. However, there was a uh, bit of reporting in Politico, which is an excerpt from a forthcoming book about that impeachment, uh, which, you know, shows pretty clearly that there were witnesses who were able to testify at that impeachment, specifically a a Republican congresswoman uh, who knew that Trump had encouraged the mob and expressed approval of what they were doing on a phone call with Kevin McCarthy. Uh, We're talking about that famous call Trump made to uh, the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, saying, you know, well, I'm not going to send help, Kevin. I think that these people must just be more upset about the election than you were, uh, which, you know, shows uh, active encouragement of the insurrection in real time, which was not something that uh, was entirely clear back in February and could have been made clear by that testimony. But the White House wanted to move on. They wanted to pursue their own agenda. They wanted to stop talking about Trump. They wanted to put the focus back on uh, uniting the country as much as, as such a thing as possible. And uh, they leaned on the House impeachment ma- managers to not take the risk of calling those witnesses and to just wrap up their case 
pretty, pre, uh, in my opinion, prematurely, and uh, it left something to be desired in that in that potentially very pivotal pivotal political moment. Uh, and I think it was a lost opportunity. Well, in that phone conversation with, that uh, was relayed by the Republican congresswoman when Trump said, "I think my people care more about the election theft or whatever he described it than you do, Kevin." Apparently, McCarthy's response was. They're trying to effing kill me. <laughs> I mean, that was the reality. I mean, you saw in the hearing on Thursday the footage of Nancy Pelosi and the and the other leaders at Fort McNair. You know, she's trying to get the National Guard from Virginia and Maryland and talking about how there's, you know, defecation in the halls of the Congress, etc. It's unbelievable what happened and the idea that it's taken this long to get some accounting do you think it's going to affect the move the needle in terms of the election? Because I, I imagine nobody probably it wasn't paid on Fox News, as far as I know. It was on MSNBC and on CNN. That's kind of preaching to the choir. Do you think it's going to move the needle? You know, the prediction is the lowest form of journalism, and anything that I say is going to be wrong. Uh, I think people are pretty set about their opinions of Trump. I think basically everybody has had made their mind up about Trump uh, for the most part before January 6th. Uh, but I do think it is worthwhile to conduct this much more thorough fact-finding exercise to try and convey really the gravity and the violence of that day. Um, it is really a miracle that in spite of the horrific violence that, that more people were not killed than were. Uh, it is in, in many ways a matter of luck that sitting members of Congress uh, were not able to be taken hostage by some of these violent militia gangs that seem to have had that intention. You know, it was a really dramatic attempt to overthrow the Democratic election of the president with physical violence. Uh, and I think, you know, that sounds quite extreme to say, and it's, it is nonetheless accurate, and it was an extreme event. So, you know, I, I think that the January 6th committee has done a very good job in part because they're very cognizant of what their actual job is. You know, they know that they are making a case to the public. They keep on saying over and over again that they do not have uh, the power to bring charges, even though it seems like they will be making some criminal referrals to the Justice Department. You know, this is a uh, public facing enterprise meant to educate and inform the public and to bring the fact-finding powers of Congress to a public, a public interest inquiry. And, you know, I think that that's, that's worthwhile, even if it doesn't result in, in, you know, a flipped Senate seat or a successful prosecution of this man who has so far evaded uh, so much legal culpability. I think it's, it's worth it for its own sake to know what the truth is and, and to, stand on the principle that that matters. Well, I sure would like to see criminal referrals, and I'd like to see Tony Arnado arrested and Mark Meadow arrested. I'm not sure that that will happen. There's clearly Arnado, who was Deputy Chief of Staff, even though, and now, by the way, he's back at the Secret Service, for God's sake. You know, we know from the testimony that there was a lot of information, both at the Secret Service and the FBI, that this was going to happen, and nobody acted on it, apparently. But in the broader picture... The one person I'd love to see in jail, of course, is Jared Kushner, and he has profited more from this disgraceful and dysfunctional and destructive 
four years of Trump than anybody else. He got $2.5 billion from the Saudis as a reward. Now, Senator Ron Wyden is looking into how Jared got $1.2 billion from the Qataris, and it looks as though the real story there is that when he was courting Ivanka, Jared bought this white elephant, 666 Fifth Avenue, and they had a balloon payment due of, one, I think, about $1.2 billion that would have put the Kushner company out of business, and he miraculously got this loan at the last minute, that which came from the Qataris that was laundered through a Canadian property company, and it looks as if it was because MBS had conducted a blockade against Qatar, and uh, Trump himself didn't even know that the biggest U.S. base was there. So it looks as if Jared made a deal with the Qataris, saying, I'll get MBS to ease off on the blockade if you give me $1.2 billion. So we know that Trump is the grifter-in-chief, but it looks like the son-in-law has outgrifted him. Trump is now going to make a ton of money running for president, whether he does it or not, which Paul Ryan has suggested he's more interested in shaking down the MAGA crowd than he is in you know, running for president. So the grift continues without any retribution, as far as I can tell. Yeah, you know, there's certainly uh, no shortage of corruption in the Trump administration. I was talking to a colleague of mine recently about, uh, you know, just the plethora of lawsuits being filed against Donald Trump and the Trump organization. And it, it became clear over the course of our conversation that if every single one of the alleged frauds was going to be fully uh, investigated and litigated or, or even prosecuted, that, uh, that that would that effort would far exceed, you know, the duration of Donald Trump's natural life. You bring up the um, the potential for Donald Trump to make more money off of his followers and fans. And this was, in fact, the focus, and I think, you know, potentially a little bit of an underplayed focus by the, the January 6th uh, Select Committee of, of one of their hearings was on uh, these continuous fundraising emails that uh, persisted framing uh, hope of an election overturn or hope of a, you know, imminent legal victory as these sort of oasis in the desert that, uh, that Trump's followers could could keep crawling to if only they you know continued to donate money uh and and that effort to raise money off of trump's followers persisted uh long after donald trump himself and trump's campaign was was fully aware that they had exhausted their legal remedies so you know there's there's sort of infinite avenues of of wrongdoing to investigate uh but i think a lot of Americans on the left, and for the sake of democracy more broadly, it would it would simply be better if somebody who is so indifferent to the rule of law and specifically indifferent to the integrity of democratic elections uh, simply wasn't able to run for office again. And that is a, you know, that's not something the January 6th Select Committee can do. That's something that the impeachment could have done and, and didn't manage to do. And now it's a responsibility that I think falls to American voters. Sure, but it's a part of the Constitution. It's uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That if you're guilty yeah. of insurrection, you can't run for a public office. So it looks to me, though, that the DOJ will indict him after the election because the thing that worries him more than anything else, I don't think that the January 6th Committee bothers him at all, but I do believe his recognition that he's under, he's got a serious problem 
of the theft of government property, including top-secret documents. The FBI don't even know to this day, Moira, whether he still has some that they don't know about. They suspect he has some hidden away, maybe at Bedminster or somewhere else. But the stuff that they found is so explosive that, again, you know, this is a career criminal who now looks as though he's also a traitor. I mean, why did he take all these documents? What's he done with them? You have to assume the worst. In counterintelligence, you have to always assume the worst once this stuff's exposed at a private club in Florida where there's a, a storeroom off the pool which didn't even have a lock on it. I mean, God, <laughs> that's a counterintelligence nightmare. So he's already cost the country billions and billions in terms of national security. Yeah, you know, the, Mar- the Mar-a-Lago thing, uh, the, the stolen documents, it's quite bizarre. It's irresponsible beyond the point where uh, mere recklessness or incompetence is a plausible excuse, uh, particularly his obstinate refusal to cooperate with either the National Archives or the Department of Justice on this issue. And, you know, uh, with Donald Trump, there there has never, at least for me, there's never been a moment where uh, the truth turned out to be better or less incriminating than I expected. There's a, never been a pattern of him being, you know, unfairly maligned and then turned out to be innocent. That's that's not what has really happened with this guy. So I I think at this point, nothing would shock me. So uh, everything is worse than meets the eye. So. <laughs> but let's hope that in a few months' time, Moira, when I talk to you again, we are not talking about Donald Trump, that either he's in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket. But, um, well, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. So, again, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. It was great to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Moira Donegan, who's a writer living in New York, whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Parish Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, The Vote to Subpoena Trump Shows Democrats Have Found Their Fighting Spirit. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Chinese Communist Party Congress, which begins today to anoint Xi Jinping for another decade in power at a time when the country's once-roaring economy is in deep trouble. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Susan Shirk, who's the research professor and the chair of the 21st Century China Center at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. From 1997 to 2000, she served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs with responsibility for China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia. 
and is the author of China, Fragile Superpower, and The Political Logic of Economic Reform in China. And her latest book out this week is Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. And she has an article at the New York Times, Xi Jinping Has Fallen Into the Dictator Trap. Welcome to Background Briefing, Susan Shirk. Thanks very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Susan. And it's always been a bit of a paradox that the People's Republic of China has a communist party that oversees a capitalist economy. And it's often been said that the Chinese government works very well in practice, but not in theory. And now it seems that Xi Jinping is trying to turn that on its head and make it work in theory, meaning Maoist communism, at the expense of it working in practice. Well, it is quite a remarkable moment because uh, Xi Jinping is heading into this very important political transition at the 20th Party Congress that will be uh, that is convening right now. And uh, normally, leaders want everything to go smoothly, everything going well, especially the economy on the eve of an important political moment like this. But in fact, for the first time in decades, uh, the Chinese economy is really struggling. And many of the reasons for it are Xi Jinping's own policies. So is he, as the former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd says, that you have to look at, see him as an ideologue, that he's actually steeped in Maoist ideology. Maybe that's all he knows. I know he's not that well educated. You know, in other words, all he knows is Maoism and militarism. Is that a fair description? Well, um, that may be the reason that he's made these policy mistakes, because he it has these ideological commitments. He uh, still believes in Marxism. But the reason that China's on the ropes right now is really because of the system. It's not just uh, his own thinking. In other words, the system that he has created of very concentrated power, uh, very little consultation with the professionals in the government, and uh, this top-down pressure on all the subordinate officials who uh, in order to prove their loyalty, which is what really counts for Xi Jinping more than their competence, to prove their loyalty, they go overboard in the way they carry out his decisions. And then nobody dare tell him the costs of these policies uh, because they don't want to anger the leader and they don't want to attract attention as someone who is disloyal because the risks to your career, to your family are really pretty severe given this anti-corruption campaign that has persisted really over the past 10 years. But hasn't Xi Jinping used that anti-corruption campaign to basically neutralize or jail his possible political rivals. opponents or rivals? Yes, yes, he has. But it 
it really the numbers of people who've been disciplined or jailed um, are, you know, I think more than four million officials. And just in the last uh, year or so, 180,000 officials in the security and disciplinary bureaucracies, the very same people who were responsible for carrying out the uh, anti-corruption campaign or purge at earlier stages, now they themselves have become the targets. So it's become what Zbigniew Brzezinski called the permanent purge. And it frightens officials. They feel they need to fall into line. And they end up uh, over-complying with Xi Jinping's decision. So uh, in my book, I attribute the the, uh, problems that China's having today domestically as well as the international backlash as the result not just of his own individual misjudgments, but also this system now that he has created that leads to overreach, overcompliance, doing things in an exaggerated way, and it's ending up being costly for China. Well, the IMF has forecast China's growth at 3.2% this year, compared to 8.1% in 2021. So, and we've also seen footage of people in in the country protesting in front of a bank, demanding they get their life savings out from a rural bank that had frozen and the authorities really cracked down on them. There was, of course, this banner across a bridge in Beijing. They got a lot of attention. So in terms of dissent, it's the most ubiquitous surveillance state in the world that Xi Jinping has created. So you have to wonder at, at the bravery of somebody to put up a banner like that is that in any way an indication, Susan Shirk, that there is an underground movement against Xi Jinping? Well, you know, I think it's hard to say. When we do surveys up until recently, we have some surveys in the field now at the China Data Lab of 21st Century China Center that may reveal some softening or change in the public support of the central government and Xi Jinping, due especially to the draconian zero COVID approach. But up until now, uh, public support for the central government has remained pretty strong. There may be uh, more widespread dissent than we know. It's very hard to tell. Of course, we China scholars haven't been able to go to China to do research for more than two years. Um, but at the elite level, there is a sense that I get from the people I talk to that there is uh, some degree of frustration and dissatisfaction with Xi Jinping. For one thing, the lack of power sharing means all these other politicians in the Chinese Communist Party, you know, have feel 
cut out and feel at risk uh, from Xi Jinping. And then, of course, the college-educated intellectuals, professionals, and especially private business people, they are very frustrated because they think that she has made poor decisions and that he's trying to suppress all uh, debate within the system, which, of course, is going to lead to what Deng Xiaoping, talking about Mao, criticized as arbitrary decisions over concentration of authority leading to arbitrary decisions. Well, already, in terms of his meddling with the economy or the entrepreneurs, uh, more than a trillion dollars has been wiped off the market value of Alibaba and Tencent. Mm -hmm. Um, So it looks as if they're on a trajectory in China to create more inequality, more financial debt, and more environmental damage. And the idea that this wolf warrior diplomacy, which is is creating a backlash, is creating the, the quad and concern in the, in the neighborhood, if you will, going after the Chinese youth, saying that they wants to get rid of sissy boys who are you know into South Korean K-pop and not ready to fight in the military. I mean, nationalism was the Chinese communist leadership's answer to Tiananmen, was it not, to encourage nationalism and materialism. But I don't see how you can keep people working, particularly on this 996th idea that you have to work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week in the name of building the country if you're not getting a slice of the pie. Well, certainly the the party has, up until recently, built its public support, its legitimacy, on its ability to deliver improved living standards to people. And if it's uh, no longer able to do that, it will seek other sources of legitimacy like anti-foreign nationalism, but that's really pretty dangerous. And it's not clear to me that if people... Uh, if people's living standards, their savings are really at risk, that it's going to be sufficient to maintain public support. But I really uh, don't anticipate in the short to medium term any kind of bottom-up resistance to Xi Jinping. You may have isolated examples like this brave person who put up the sign on the bridge. But I think a much riskier proposition for Xi Jinping is the risk of public, of splits in the leadership. But given that he's supporting Putin, although in the uh, General Assembly vote the other day, overwhelmingly against Russia, China did abstain, and only Nicaragua, Belarus, North Korea, and Syria supported Russia. But still, the frightening part of what's happening there is in terms of nuclear weapons, which is that uh, the mutually assured destruction doctrine is now being used by Putin as a shield behind which he's fighting a conventional war in Ukraine and threatening the use of nuclear weapons. 
And some analysts suggest that that same MO could be used by Xi Jinping to use his nuclear arsenal as a shield to conduct a conventional war against Taiwan. So what are the prospects of that? Well, I, I, I don't think that aggression against Taiwan is imminent, but I am concerned because in the latest white paper, uh, after Speaker Pelosi's visit, they did leave out a number of the assurances to the people of Taiwan about what peaceful reunification or one country, two systems might look like. And these two assurances were that they wouldn't base military forces or government personnel in Taiwan. Well, what is significant about that is I do worry a bit, more than a bit, that Xi Jinping is closing off the path of peaceful reunification through winning the hearts and minds of the Taiwan people, which is what his predecessor, Hu Jintao, had attempted to do. So, uh, but on the other hand, we should always remember that any Chinese leader who attempts to use force against Taiwan to reunify by force, who loses, who fails, it is widely believed inside China that any leader like that would be brought down by the furious nationalist public. So Xi Jinping really only wants to use military force if he can be 100% sure that it will be successful. And I don't think the military is going to tell him that they're there yet. And of course, there are efforts to deter on Taiwan's part and on the part of the United States and other allies, including Japan, that would also make Xi think twice about doing anything because he couldn't be confident of winning. And then I do think the Ukraine example uh, also causes him to be somewhat more cautious. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Susan Shoke, obviously the one country, two systems model is totally out the window now as a result of mm-hmm. what Xi Jinping has done in Hong Kong. Nobody in Taiwan mm-hmm. is going to take that seriously. And you, your new book just out this week, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, obviously explains what's happening and what, how it changed from the successes of Deng Xiaoping, Zhang Jingming and Hu Jintao to this new leader who's turned things around in a more militaristic and assertive way. And he does seem to be impatient. He's 69. He's going to basically, I don't know whether he's going to put himself in there for life like Putin has done, but something along those lines. So, in Well, terms you know, of- um, Ian, may I just um, jump in here for a sec? Sure. I, I think uh, you and others will find my book interesting and intriguing because I actually make the argument that the start of the overreaching after 
decades of a very restrained foreign policy comes in the second term of Hu Jintao. So it actually starts before Xi Jinping. And my story about what happened in the Hu Jintao uh, reign, I think is pretty interesting, especially for people like yourselves who like to go inside the black box and uh, of Chinese politics and see how things work. So it was surprising to me that the collective leadership of Hu Jintao uh, actually started this trend of less restrained foreign policy and also less restraint in social and media control. But just in the last minute, Susan Shirk, in your new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, what quickly could you tell us about policy recommendations to the Biden administration? Well, my overall policy recommendation is not to overreact in a way that will actually be harmful to America's own competitiveness and to our free market and open society. I think uh, I've become increasingly critical of Biden administration policy, and I in that last chapter, I tell you why. Well, I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks so much for asking me. And again, I've been speaking with Susan Shirk, who's a research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. From 1997 to 2000, she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs with responsibility for China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia and is the author of China, Fragile Superpower, and the Political Logic of Economic Reform in China. Her latest book out this week is Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. And she has an article in the New York Times, Xi Jinping Has Fallen Into the Dictator Trap. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.